welcome back to Young Bucks episode two. Um, if you tuned into the first one, I did say that this was going to be a recurring thing and I'm doing weekly episodes. And if this is your first one that you're listening to, thanks for, um, for joining me and my guest today. It's a podcast basically based around everything to do with being a young entrepreneur um, uh, in business, startups, um, the life of a, of a young entrepreneur, what it takes. And uh, every week I'll have different guests on to talk about their perspective on business and their experiences of being entrepreneurs. Um, so yeah, welcome to episode two, Young Bucks. I said I was going to do it and here we are. Okay, so today um, I have on my brother-in-law who is Matt Churchward, a guy I've known in and out of my life for about 12 maybe 12 to 15 years and a man that I've seen take on many different hats in the business world. Um, and he's I've brought him on today because I think he could give an interesting perspective on what it was like for him to be a young entrepreneur and still be a young entrepreneur with a young family and what he's done in the recruitment industry. Um, and so, yeah, how you doing, Matt? Good thanks, Will. Yeah. I'm not actually, I'm not actually minding the uh, lockdown at the moment. To be honest with you, it's quite nice. Yeah, I think so far, so far. Yeah, the biggest upset for me was just no sport. I think was the worst part. If if there was Sky Sports still running, I would be completely content with this. I mean, I'm obviously being polite because I'm married to your sister. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're the father of my uncle. Yeah. Yeah, but really, so yeah, uh, yeah, your father and my nephew. I'm the uncle, um, but yeah, man, it, I think it's it is what it is. Basically, you you taking that time to maybe learn a new skill, um, learning some new courses, a bit more about private equity and things like that that I'm not particularly strong at. So I'm trying to yeah. you know trying to do a bit of bit on that side of things. Um, Via what? Uh, Open University have got a load of free courses on there, so you can go on there. They've got all sorts from business stuff through to languages, history, everything like that. So there's quite a lot of different sources you can go on where there's a lot, a lot of free um, information out there and, and um, courses, education as well. So you don't have to be paying for things at the moment. Um, so I think it's, it, you know, I, I think it's important if you can, great, learn something. But I don't think you should, you know, a lot of people are under pressure to. Uh, you know, putting on the pressure that you have to come out with a new skill or you have to come out with a, you know, yeah. two stone light or this or that. But I think you yeah. just got to do it at your own pace, really. Haven't For you? sure, so, it affects people um, differently, and obviously, also, I think everybody has a different circumstance in it. Um, but yeah, no, I checked out that Open University. I was, I did um, last week. What was I do? I did an intermediate course on marketing, and that was about four hours long. And I did a, a beginner's course in finance um private finance for business which was quite good yeah i always think when, whenever you're doing any sort of training or you've on any course i think it sometimes it's easy to be not not negative but to think oh this isn't for me or that but I, so i think it's key if you go on anything if you can take just one thing away from it that you could either implement into your own business or that, you, that, that will have a lasting kind of resonance with you that you can implement then i think that's that you should then look at that as a positive rather than yeah. you know going and expecting something to you know be 10 out of 10 and tick every single box it's, it's, that's just unlikely to happen in any kind of walk of life particularly when you're you know trying to learn courses or, or mm. go on training sessions i think and definitely just yeah, try I've, things 
Yeah, definitely. I think obviously the older you get as well, the harder it does become sometimes. I've, uh, you know, like now, what the amount saying? of times. But <laughs> 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 no, uh, he's young buck. He's so still a young buck um, by default. On. But yeah, no, I think even for me, like I completely took for granted how easy it would have been to learn a language at school. And now when I'm the three or four times that I've tried to teach myself Spanish in my 20s, has just been like diabolical. Um. But yeah, so, so obviously uh, you tuned into the first episode and uh, so you get the premise that this is obviously a show, that, a podcast that I'm doing weekly for young entrepreneurs and from the analytics I got from the first episode of the 105 people that tuned in, um, my largest demographic was 18 to 24. So it seems like I've hit my target market um, from, the, from the get-go. Uh, so just maybe we could go through a little background on yourself and your introduction to business and, and entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, it depends how far back you want to go, but just loosely, I, I went to university in Cardiff, 19, uh, 1990, 2002 now, studied history. I didn't really know Past what I wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do um, after university at the time. I think back then there was, it was really poor for um, like the careers advice. It was yeah. really, really bad at the time. Um, not, not specifically Cardiff, just as a whole. Yeah. Um, and um, as such, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't really much guidance. You either went on to a grad scheme with your kind of like your banking, you know, firms or Accenture, that that sort of type of business or black. So those types of business, or you were a bit like, I haven't got a clue what I what to do now. Um, yeah. I mean, I, did, I didn't, I didn't have anything vocationally that I wanted to do. So I thought like doing a history degree. One, it sort of suited my skill sets, which was more writing, but it also, you know, it didn't pigeonhole me into anything. It allowed me to... One of the classics, really, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of gave me a bit of... Yeah, it didn't pigeonhole me. So um, so I came out of there and straight away moved to London. Um, didn't have a job when I moved there. It's always a bit chicken and egg when you move to the city. You either, you know, if you haven't got a job, it's hard to rent. If you have somewhere to live, people don't want to employ you. So at the time, so I just managed to move in with a couple of uh, friends from... from Torquay and mm-hmm. um, moved to Putney. Mm-hmm. Um, lived somewhere that was costing me about £800 a month in rent in a muse house on the river. Didn't have any idea and I was earning <laughs> 15, grand, 15 grand a year so I had to, uh, had to take a job doing bar work in Guildford and drive yeah. down with one of my housemates three nights a week. So I was absolutely knackered and yeah. but I was living in a palace at the time that I couldn't afford. So, um, you, you were literally... Ridiculous. Going broke, trying to look rich. I wasn't even trying to look. You just didn't. I just didn't know, and I was just naive, <laughs> and just I didn't have anywhere else to live. And my, my friends took this place. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then I ended up there. So I was I was perennially skint. Didn't get to enjoy London at that time. Yeah. So then I I, I ended up working in uh, recruitment advertising, which is slightly different than recruitment sales that I'm now in um did a sort of project management role that role was that was kind of like looking after graduate campaigns for like companies like Toyota Europe and they'd be yeah. looking for engineers across the whole of the you know the, across central Europe and you'd be trying to find people and doing like real high volume applications getting them down to you know 100 hires from 10,000 applicants that type of stuff um but I was just skint all the time and I wasn't enjoying London because of it so I, I wanted to go into something that that would allow me to, you know, have a bit of con- control over my paycheck and you know, just having a different paycheck each month. So that's how I ended up taking the plunge into actual recruitment sales, which was the yeah. back end of 2004. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, then did uh, five to six years working for one agency, um, and I stayed with it because recruitment is a bit like a, a bit like well, like any job really, but particularly recruitment, you, you tend to see people move around quite a lot. But I really wanted to stay with one company, a because they were growing really, really quickly at the time. They yeah. worked predominantly within the public sector, and at the time it was um, you know back end of new labor where they were funneling a huge amount of cash into pub sex. So it was a really, really good market to be in at the time. So yeah. it was, um, and it was a great, it was a great business, um, award-winning company, good people working there, but it was, it was really hard, really, really hard graft, quite um, high KPI driven culture, which recruitment was quite a lot in, in those days in the, in the mid northeast. Mm. Um, but it was um, stayed in it because I just wanted to get that, I really, really, really wanted to get management experience because I think yeah. I always wanted, I always knew that something in me I wanted to set up on my own. I just felt like. So you knew, you had the foresight then that you were laying the foundations for what, for what you were going to do after. Yeah, I reckon a, I reckon a year, 18 months in, what I, I put my, um, one of, it was my friend at the time, worked with at this company and we went down to, to Devon and I can remember now speaking to my dad about, um, what we did and my dad saying well why don't you set up on your own now and we, we was we so we were thinking about it back then and that was like 2006 probably but we yeah. the reason we didn't do it then was one we didn't have enough we didn't feel like we'd had enough experience of managing in different situations as well we were in a really good market at the time and it's one of those if you you know if you, if you it's easy to think you're good when you're in a good market but you know an average recruiter or an average salesperson can be quite successful in a gun market um doesn't really teach as much about yourself so i think we all we both realized then that we wanted to you know experience a few different things get some more management experience under our belt and um yeah basically go from go from there so i think that's why i personally stayed with with one company for as long so a number of different factors but what the large one was to really kind of get get as much experience in the belt as possible so that you know if my you know dream came true of starting my own business i'd have a, a you know a few more strings to the bow from um, from the outset. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, and, yeah then, that's and, it. Then, and then from from there, obviously, you took the dive, the plunge into into becoming self-employed and, and starting up your own business. Yeah, so 2010. So when I first joined um, a previous recruitment company in 2004, 2005, the first person I sat next to. Um, is you know i was his best man at his wedding and became a business partner as well so we've been you know close from that time yeah so, yeah 2000 2010 um was when we august 2010 we incorporated the business and, and both left the same company then we basically got into a position where um we just weren't it had been a very kind of fast growth entrepreneurial business and it had reached a stage where it was in, in an awkward stage where it wasn't uh, a real fast growing startup anymore, but it wasn't a big company. Yeah. In terms of, you know, it wasn't, it was about, it got to about 80 million turnover, which sounds like a lot, but when you're doing temp contract books, you know, it was still a, a sizable business, probably 200 heads, um, mainly Manchester, Birmingham, London. Um, and then it, it had to become something different. Mm -hmm. So it had to become a business that had a lot of tech put into it at that time. It had, it was quite, clunky and it wanted it needed to become a lot bigger than it was yeah. to take that next step to become like a Hayes or a Reed or a Michael Page those sort of firms that mm. you know the wider 
wider public might have heard of, yeah. the Randstads. Um, so it became a lot more bureaucratic, hiding quite a lot of people from externally, um, a lot more process driven, a lot less entrepreneurial. Um, yeah. and, it, and, and it felt you like... just going through the gears. Yeah, there wasn't... There wasn't because they were bringing people in that had come from larger companies. They were kind of company men. employees, company mm. men and company women, mm. and they weren't bringing anything new. They were just bringing the way a lot of businesses. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses in the world, they someone will work for a really good company, like a, an Apple, say, and then that mm. person will go and work and set up their own business. <laughs> Inevitably, they will take a heck of a lot of what they've learned from Apple, yeah. put their own sprinkling of ideas on it. But essentially what you end up getting is you get quite a lot of like the offshoots come very similar. So then in, in the recruitment world, what I found was in our business, suddenly we were hiring people, you know, from the top, very companies that our business model originally had been built on. So they weren't then, but they just got further up the, the corporate ladder in that company. Therefore, when they were then coming to our business at the time, they were just bringing the same old ideas that yeah. our business had been founded on. So there wasn't anything new and it wasn't very inspiring. And I, and I think that, Particularly, I mean, I was 29 when we started the business, and I think at that stage you, you really want to be learning more. And I don't know, I, I can't honestly say that if I hadn't had a really inspirational manager that was teaching me new things, that I wouldn't have stayed for a bit longer. Yeah, but I just it just wasn't the case. Um, the structure wasn't there, and it wasn't anyone's fault. It just that was just the, the natural kind of evolution of that business, and it was it was the time was right for both of us. We were we were bored. We were um, and we just thought, do you it know what? Like it seems like from the outside in, the, almost like with recruitment, that everybody moves on at one stage, whether it be the kicking on to become business owners in that industry or moving on into a different sector in a different industry. Do you, like, when you were obviously young and in it and, and, and moving on to become becoming startups in it, what were some strategies that you sort of used to get ahead in ahead of your competition and slice out um, your market share? Obviously it's such a, like you, I mean, you must've listed eight then. In terms of, are you talking companies. in terms of as, as a consultant or when we, or when we started our own business? No, when you started your own business. So moving on, obviously you left and started well, I guess, your own yeah, business. So I guess so what lessons do you learn when you, when you start on your own business, unless you're, you know, you've got, you've got a, unless you're really, really arrogant or really stupid, you, you're going to look at what worked well and yeah. you've seen work well in your previous business and you're going to take, you're going to take the best bits of what you've liked and then not necessarily change, but add in the bits that, you know, you think are different. And, and I, and I think one thing I learned was that the business I worked for was very, it was a brilliant public sector recruitment business, mm-hmm. but we always, always, and I was involved in it as well at times, they really, really owners really wanted to crack the private sector finance back, uh, sector because that's what their background has been. They weren't the own, the actual top owners weren't, yeah. weren't real recruiters. They worked in the city and they'd start up a small headhunting firm. Um, so it was just, I think it was a, well, not a pet passion of theirs, but they just really wanted to get into it. Yeah, but for sure. You can't break into a highly competitive existing market when your clients, prospective clients will go on your website and they're like you're a public sector recruiter why why would i use you ahead of michael page or whoever that i've been using for the last five years to find me i don't know accountant or whatever 
why would we use you ahead of them? And, and you don't, there's no comeback to that. So I feel like you're almost kind of taking a knife to a gunfight if you're trying to do something where, you know, so you basically need to inhabit the vertical niche that you, that you want to be in. The other thing that we, we noticed as well, which is part of um, working in the public sector, was as soon as the um, 2008 hit, or, you know, austerity got, you know, came in and a, a lot of the public sector funding was just cut regressively overnight. And suddenly, you know, we used to have, con we used to run contractors in, in, in temp contractors and suddenly they'd just be getting cut left, right and centre and your, oh. your revenue bit would be like, you know, halved or quartered overnight. Yeah. And we're thinking, this, you know, and that's the stats because it's cyclical things like that. It's like with, you know, sure. recessions and things like that. So we, we tried to think of something that, in, that had immediate kind of low barriers of entry in terms of other players within that market. Yep. Um, come up with a name that would speak of us being experts in it from day one, even though yep. we hadn't done it before. But yep. Also something that, that logically over a period of 10 to 20, 30 years, it's going to see growth. It's going to see growth and is going to be an attractive purchase potentially down the line to a yeah. bigger business and stuff like that. So um, long and short of it, we still argue to the day who came up with the, the name and the idea, but we, we launched the green recruitment company in 2010 with the um, kind of the vision to be that the leading kind of um, renewable energy sustainability yeah. um, at that time um, recruitment business. And there weren't particularly many competitors at that time. Um, <clears throat> our name was such that I think in like day four of um, <clears throat> trading, we had like Greenpeace call in to see if we could help them fill a role. And that was just from, google because <laughs> our name our name just got us yeah. natural seo on the way on, yeah. on, on 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 google searches so that was that was brilliant yeah um and straight away that you know your, your clients had this confidence that you were going to be able to support them and you didn't need to ring up and explain 10 10, 10, 10 minutes explaining who you were mm. and a lot of people start their businesses and their, and their actual business names will be their own surnames put together yeah. which you know i mean yeah, 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 it's real, it's real it US law firms. Yeah, it's a bit kind of ego driven rather than business driven when people do that. In my, that's just my opinion. Um, for sure. So, you know, you, if you can get commercial advantage by the name of your business, you know, why wouldn't you try and do that? So that, that, mm. that was kind of why we started it. And at the time, it was very sort of tariff driven within the UK, renewable energy. It was, it was incentivized by the government. Um, but we always felt like long term, it just had to be something that was, you know, it, it, as it's proven at the moment, the, the, the change in the last 10 years and the public yeah. kind of consciousness of, of climate change and renewable energy, mm. you know, it, it's, it's, I think David Cameron called it that green crap or something like that back in 2010. I mm. mean, you could, you know, if you said that now, well. Trump does say something, except for Donald Trump. If you said that <laughs> nowadays, as the you know, as the British Prime Minister or you know, a European leader, you you'd be laughed out of government, wouldn't you? So, one hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I think even now, something we touched on last week's episode was small, you know, businesses using green marketing to get ahead because it's it's like it is in the consumer's conscience now. Um, and I guess you guys were way ahead of that curve, really. Um, 
but it's, it's becoming bigger than financial investment now. Something called ES, where ESG, which is quite a, it's a broader thing, and environmental the E is environmental, and it's social and governance, and that is because investors now they want to see, they want to know what the supply chain is of those businesses that they're investing in. They want to feel like that that they are investing in proper ethical businesses rather than you know it it, it being greenwashing. 10 years ago where it was a bit like you know we'll say we do it because we have to whereas yeah. now it's you have to be doing it um, yeah people genuinely care about it so mm-hmm. um so yeah yeah so it's been a, it's been um an interesting kind of 10 years with regards to the green business but we've we started up and started sold off closed a couple of other businesses along the way as well so yeah you know not just being green and it's been you know we've had successes failures opened number of offices internationally you know ones still ones worked ones currently working and one failed so there's all different types of lessons that we've learned over the it's um when we started the business we were told that you know there's point a and point b and it isn't a straight line so there it's it's mm. peaks and troughs throughout that and you yeah. kind of at the time you're like oh yeah no whatever you know, will go straight there, and then, and then, yeah, it's it's. You realise that it is peaks and troughs. Rocky road, yeah. Yeah, and in obviously, uh, I you know, very very limited knowledge other than from what I know from you and um, in your previous employment when I was younger, and and with your with the green company now, in the recruitment sector, how important do you think? Well, actually, I'll rephrase it. What do you think was most important for you? um starting up your business the usp of being you know the green recruitment company um and focusing on that niche or purely was it was it was it a usp driven business or for you was it were you just out competing your competitors with better recruiters better headhunters more employees more startup more capital was it you know, how were the scales weighed up for you guys? It certainly wasn't capital. We went in with nothing. We put about a couple of grand in each to start up. It was, it was nothing. We were working mm-hmm. from a lounge, <coughs> from a business partner's lounge. Yeah. We were both skint at the time. Um, so it wasn't that. I think when you, when you first, because it's your business, you obviously think, care more. And you, therefore, yeah. we, we had six years recruitment experience each. Therefore, yeah you're going to naturally be a bit better than a grad recruiter, maybe working for a larger business whereby the renewables and green isn't really a huge part of what they're focusing on. So I think that makes it, that made a difference. Um, (coughs) It's it's, it's so many different factors. I'd say the name definitely. Um, I think, uh, I think both myself and business partner would, would both admit that we wouldn't have got to where we have without each other. Because um, mm. I think it's it's there was a trust there before we started, which was good. Um, but we bring so complementary skill sets. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I'd say I mean we started. In, so I was twenty nine and he was twenty eight when we started the business. I still think it took us till I was probably thirty two for us to sit in a room together and admit what we were not so good at and what we were good at. But the ego is the side. <clears throat> yeah because i think you kind of it's a hard one because you need e- ego i guess you need that competitiveness yeah 
to drive the business and you need that probably especially in recruitment yeah <clears throat> if you thought if you were second guessing your um abilities in certain areas then you, you'd struggle so i don't i think i wouldn't necessarily say it's a bad thing but i do think that once you've got the business off the ground mm. to progress to the next level you need to allow each other to do what you're good at yeah, um, and accept that absolutely. and be comfortable in it rather than, yeah. So I think that that's, you kind of naturally, it naturally happens a bit anyway, but I think that there's a real lot of power in the fact that you can sit down with, with someone as a, particularly as a, a you know, a, a highly motivated testosterone filled bloat in your kind of early 30s at that, you know, and, you, and to admit, actually, I'm not particularly very good at that. You, but you're yeah. better than me at that. I think it, yeah. it's, it's quite hard to say that, but I think we, we got to that stage quite quickly so um, yeah so. I think it, like you said it, it can be so super hard to admit admit that and like put your egos aside but that must have you must have turned a corner in your partnership there because you know something we touched on last week you know and they're obviously much younger guys um, in the very early stages of a business and I said a question I put to them was what's you know, we spoke on the old saying of partnership is a sinking ship and how there's so many dynamic partners now that are proving that wrong and what they felt were great qualities and, and what has enabled them to work as a partnership. And they both said, oh, trusting the other person to be able to do a job to the same quality or better than you can is so important. And I guess once you guys sat down and you admitted, right, these are where, this is where you're better than I am and this is where I'm better than you are. It sort it probably meant that you guys were working in in at a faster pace as well. That you took the lead on what you were better at, and he took the lead on what he was better at, rather than yeah, I think, having I think to key, keep I think, consulting each other. Yeah, I think that's key with your um with your business partner. Where I where it's probably not as, as key is with is with employees. Yeah, <laughs> particularly well in when in our case we've always operated on a grad model, so we've always hired graduates. Yeah. therefore it, then they're just not you can set they're just not initially you know they'll, they'll you know hopefully they'll outgrow you like you know when our, our sales director now is much better at sales than i ever was but oh. not when he started he wasn't so no. i think it's about letting people up you know letting taking the um training wheels off and letting people go and do things and sometimes you just got to not listen and take yourself out of the room because people have to make mistakes. Yeah. And if you don't allow people to go and make mistakes and allow them to try and learn and learn on the job, obviously with as much input, you know, it's your brand, it's your reputation. You're not going to let someone go out and completely destroy it. <laughs> so, you know, you have to let them go out and, and, and learn. And yeah. that I'm, I'm OCD and a bit of a control yeah, yeah. freak. Um, working yeah. on it and a lot better now but um, so in that respect I found, I found that so hard initially just mm. to let people whereas the business partner was like just whatever you know we won't grow unless we do this it'll yeah. just be me and you me and you still yeah you know, exactly spending, spending hours going through every CV and making sure everything's perfect and stuff you know it was <clears throat> we needed to get some you know traction and that needed you know head count getting bums on seats through bums on seats and getting Ears getting on telephones out there into different markets. yeah so um so that, yeah that was that was really hard to, to do to, but, to let um, go to employees yeah i get and that must have been hardest. 
because obviously you guys, like you said, built it from the ground up out of your business partners lounge. And at that time, you know, when I, when we said about what was more important, the USP and, and you said, obviously the name and the USP was super important, but probably in the early stages, the quality of the service you were giving your clients because it was your business and you guys had six years of experience. I imagine that as you guys started to scale up and became a bigger business and you had to let, I can really see how that would be super hard, you know, letting go to employees. Whereas somebody like myself, I've come in at a certain level of business in the family business where there was already tons of employees that I've worked with and, and, and now who, you know, I oversee, it's like, I've always had to have good delegation skills. I've always had to have like, let go to certain people. And I guess for you, for, for startups and guys that go out and, and literally build it from the ground up, that must be a super, super challenging moment where you're hiring people, you're, you you're hiring starts to get bigger than just the two of you, you know? There's somebody yeah. below you who starts to hire and then it's all really out, starts to become out of your, your immediate control, but still in your circle of influence. Yeah, I remember when I, was, when I was in my first job, I asked one of the directors at the time, a lady called Sarah, I, said, I remember asking now, I was like, what's the hardest bit of your job as a director of the business? Because I was just always like, yeah. quite interested in stuff. And she said, um, hiring and retaining staff. And I I kind of like thought, oh, you know, surely it's more sales or this and that, but it, yeah. it definitely is because particularly in, our, in, in, you know, so for those listeners that aren't quite aware of what recruitment is like, you, you get two, two main areas, which is contract recruitment or permanent recruitment and permanent recruitment. You find companies can, um, you know, staff talent um, within our niche, obviously say renewable energy. So if someone comes to us and they're looking for, you know, an investment manager within a, you know, a fund that they want to go out and um, find businesses to invest in, for example, within the, you know, renewable space, then yeah. high quality people, we will deliver them a shortlist, blah, blah, blah. And then essentially long and short of it is hopefully they'll select one of our candidates. And on that first, on that start date, we'll invoice them as a, a percentage of their first year's salary. And that is our yeah. fee. In permanent recruitment, you get cash flow straight away into the business, um, and um, but it's not it's not residual income, so it's not mm-hmm. it's not recurring income. Yeah, so you're starting on zero every month. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you, you need to have a real strict like processes in place. You need to be able to monitor all of your key performance indicators as a business and as individuals. You need to be making sure that a certain output is always being kept up because, you, and you're always tracking how those change in different markets and different times. But you're always monitoring what they are, and you're able to to run the business off those baseline figures. And you know that if a certain amount of output is being done, then you're likely to get X amount of revenue out the back end of it. Um, so, on a permanent recruitment basis, that's the way it works. With this contract recruitment, it's more of a recurring income. So. If you have a hundred contractors working for you, then you will charge the client a day rate. You'll charge the candidate a day rate that will be lower. And then the bit in the middle is your fee. And that will be paid to you based on invoices as people have put timesheets and being signed off. Yeah. That's recurring income. So as as a business, you tend to get more value if you're a temp recruitment business or if you've got a large 
temp book because a buyer would look at it and go, well, there's recurring revenue there. It's yeah, that's what I was going to buy that business. So, what, just um, to go on to. Yeah, so we, we were a contract, uh, we came from a contract background, but the business was actually perm and it still has to this day. We've done a bit of contract, but it's predominantly been a perm, perm recruitment business, sort of mid to senior level hires. Yeah. Um, so, in that respect, it's, um, it, it's quite, it, I'd say, hard to manage, but you, you need energy, you need people that are, that are coming and they're, they're delivering a certain level of. Because you're starting from uh, that zero every month. Energy, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, a, it's a very different type of business. Um, it's good because you get cash coming through quite regularly in yeah. large amounts and you get it sooner. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it is a bit riskier. In that, yeah. In that sense. And then so, obviously um, from being now, obviously where you are in, in your stay in your life cycle with this with the green recruitment company and exiting obviously i guess like you said i'm imagine that because of that business model did it you know how obviously from from prospect from other prospective buyers did it yeah, never it, did it never tempt you to go into 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 temp yeah we've we've, we've tried it a number of times but the, you know for, in our sector for example offshore wind is where the predominant contract base is but it's been very it's very it's a very um commoditized market where there's there actually has been a number of like recruiters that tradition traditionally may have recruited into oil and gas and they're very similar candidates right, maybe yeah. on the framework of you you know a lot of the uh, you know you see a lot of the developments in the offshore in the uk which is a huge offshore wind market a lot of the utilities firms will be you know putting the, you know, your EDF and those types of businesses will be involved. So it's hard for you guys to muscle your way in. It's very hard. Yeah. In your niche. Got, yeah. Because those types of businesses, when they're doing tender and procurement exercises, will want to know what size turnover you've got as a business. Mm. You know, they want to know that the businesses that they're putting on their supply chain have been around for five years because they want to know that you can pay their contractors. That their mm. con- they don't want their contracts coming off site because the recruitment yeah. company's gone. So, and then you've got you've got evidence that you've done it before you've got evidence this but and then it comes down and then essentially it's a procurement driven exercise and it comes down to price mm. and if you haven't got a back office set up where you can comfortably deliver those at you know a six percent margin which is just you know really 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 low yeah um you're probably not going to win those tenders so for us yeah. it's, always, it's always been quite hard and at the at that time we were predominantly a uk focused recruitment company we're now obviously yeah. international and there, there will be contract opportunities that we're when there are contract opportunities that we're exploring internationally now where there'll be higher margin less um less competition less barriers to entry yeah. um and where our name and our international reach will provide us with a competitive edge, edge. You, you know it goes back to going like you got to pick your fights and we yeah. did try that and we, we found out very quickly that it was probably one that we were going to struggle to gain the kind of <clears throat> traction that we needed to, to make it successful at that time. Yeah, foothold um, in that industry. Yeah, it's not to say things won't change, but so that's why um, where we are where we're at. But um, yeah, so um, I think the, what was the original question? Was it, it was about... Well we, talk, well, well, we moved on from like, you know, what was, in, what was important in your startup, uh, your USP, um, your employees, yeah. and then from there we went on to... Uh, to, to just talking about basically about the whole green sector and what you guys were doing in it and, yeah. 
Um, I think if, if, if your listeners are like looking at thinking about starting up businesses, <clears throat> if I can try and keep it as simple as possible in terms of, you know, this, I've, I've got so many lessons that I learned and so many things you would do differently. But if I can try and focus on a couple of the, the things that I think are important when you're starting up a business is like revenue. Mm. I see so many, I mean, it's yeah, different. So we've I'm had not, this conversation I'm not from a tech actually, yeah. background. Yeah. But, it, you know, for me, a business isn't a business until it's actually making money. Yeah. You know, if you can, you can go around crowdfunding and you can go around, you know, raising finance. Yeah. Because you're an idea. or Which is you know, crazy huge, like you said, in the te- in like yeah. tech industries. Exactly. So it's, it depends what sort of sector you, you, you're trying to get into. But I think what really helped us was we knew the sector. We'd, we'd always wanted to start our own business. And if I'm honest, we probably were leaning not against recruitment against recruitment because you kind of thought oh, i want to do my own business is recruitment just doing recruitment yeah and then in the end we realized well, we're actually good at recruitment we yeah. know how it works we know how yeah. to structure it we know how to hire grads come in plug them in what process we should put them through how to manage them through the first five years of progression all that type of thing so in the end it was a no-brainer to do recruitment mm-hmm. um so it really unless you've got business experience that you can then flip into different markets, I, w- I wouldn't advise anyone starting up a business in something that they um, don't really know anything about. I also think sometimes it can be dangerous if it's passion projects as well, because <coughs> you should go into business because you want to make money. Mm-hmm. Essentially not. And it's not, it's not, it sounds crude, but you know, if you're not making money, you can't pay your staff, you can't grow. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. The, what's the point? Well, um, yeah, exactly. So I think you also need to have a vision as well from what type of business do you want? It might change as you go along, but I think from the start, we, I mean, we were way too, um, I think, you know, way too ambitious. I mean, we, we had visions of building the business and selling it in five years for probably 10, 20 million, um, which clearly with hindsight would have happened. But I think that was because we come from a business that had grown so quickly because it was such a hot sector that's yeah. kind of like all you knew. So your expectations were really high, which was good and bad because it pushed you to go further than you probably would have if you hadn't had that. But at the same time, you felt constantly a bit disappointed in yourself because you hadn't reached that so level of growth. So yeah, so I think, um, but because we had that goal to grow mm. and to hit particular revenue figures, we, yeah. we, hired a non, we got a non-exec not, not, to, not to come in and do, you know, loads and loads spend loads of time with us but we'd hired a recruitment non-exec to sit down with us in year two when we just started hiring a couple people and we created a three to five year plan Mm. and and it's the first question that he asked us was what do you two want from the business do you want a lifestyle yeah do you want to exit with a lump of cash and if so how how much you prepared to give to get to that um Mm started posing questions of us that we, we hadn't really thought, well, we kind of thought, thought of, that. and then that, he said, before you even start putting a plan together, you, I need to know that first. And we said, yeah. we both agreed, we wanted to work towards a, an exit point for a fixed sum of cash. Yeah. Um, Which is the and, dream for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. You, 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 you see, in all industries, you see that. But I think it's so a super think, yeah. important point, which you're going over is obviously setting out your goals quite clearly from the offset knowing where you, what what you're actually trying to drive toward because something obviously i want to speak to you about today and ask you is obviously 
you know, was there ever a point, do you think, when you were developing in the early stages, maybe it was a couple of years ago, you know, was there ever a point that you ever thought you became so disinterested or you became, you were at a point where you just, you, you'd had enough? And if, if so, what, obviously, net to, you know, if so, what kept you motivated at those times to, to get you to where you are now? I think... Um... Yeah, we did. So you drive, you drive really hard for that first five years yeah. of, of, of starting your business. And I think that if you don't achieve, if you thought, I want to sell a business in five years, and then yeah. you don't, it can be a bit disheartening if you think I'm quite far away. And then, then we kind of knew we had to go again for another three years. But it wasn't just a green recruit. We, we, we'd started up another business um, in recruitment, and we, we actually sort of broadened out and created like a group. It wasn't a, mm-hmm. it wasn't a financial structure as a, of a group. It was more just we had a def, we had a, four different businesses of different similar names but different names, and we created a group name just for identity purpose when we're trying to speak to as to who we were to grads or the wider marketplace. Yeah. And then, and then in that scenario, we one of them we built up and then sold it to one of the founders and a couple of his management team. So it's essentially it was a management buyout for a you know, small amount of money and they exited and then another one was a, just a massive failure and the fact that the, the, the partner that we went into started up with was just um, a bit uh, just a nutter basically so um we had to close that down actually quite good at recruitment but just personal life all over the shop which essentially we didn't vet it was quite hard yeah. to vet but yeah yeah um, i'm sure one thing we've learned is it's very hard to vet things that aren't on people's cvs you can always yeah. reference if people don't put stuff on them it's quite hard to to reference what's not there um but you know you live and you learn so um that was a you know a shit show but at the mm. same time it was it was it was closed down within about a year <clears throat> we also opened a Dubai office which didn't work out and we had a we still got a digital business as well which is still going yeah. and the the common denominator about all of them would be is just people good people make money yeah and or run decent businesses and was um, that expansion was that what was keeping you motivated beyond year five yeah i think when we thought it was a group we were like wow we can you know with, with businesses as well it's all you know a lot of the time when you're talking about selling you're talking about a multiple of your ebitda so your, your mm-hmm. net profit essentially times by five mate say yeah. for example times by six so if you you know that you don't unless you've got about a million pound of EBITDA a lot of people aren't just in people just aren't interested in either acquiring you or investing in you really because yeah. there's just not enough you're not you're not adding enough to their balance sheet you know they can't put any cost on you to any subsistence so it's, it's, unless you're really niche it's just not quite there so we yeah. thought the best our best opportunity to get to that into that one to two million EBITDA range was to have created, you know, strength in numbers. Therefore, mm-hmm. you know, everyone would be putting a smaller amount in that. But if you were putting, you know, if you were putting half a million of EBITDA into the pot, you know, on a, on a direct sale for your business, you might be getting three times multiplier for that yeah. 500 grand. But if you're yeah. all in it together and you're getting a multiplier of six because the business is that, as a group is that much stronger, suddenly you're doubling the value of, your contribution to that business. So that was kind of like where we were at 
so it was, a, it was it was not only the expansion but obviously the financial implications of that expansion were definitely yeah from serious different brands for you yeah so that that's where we were kind of and it was a bit opportunistic as well so you know it was someone we'd worked with before where we set up one of them and the other one was someone that's approached us and we're like well yeah no, that's a good sector we had a kind of a bit of a, a blueprint as to like what types of businesses we would go into and things like that and yeah. ultimately you know myself and my, my business partner we, only two, we, we, we trust each other and we work probably too much on handshakes between ourselves but we've probably been a bit too trusting but yeah maybe a bit blase in terms of things in the past so you know another thing i'd be saying would be doesn't matter who you are get make sure you it's worth you know every penny you can spend you have to spend thousands but you need to, you need you need a shareholder agreement you need clarity on roles and things like that up front so that you know you, you're avoiding as much um problems as possible down the line but um so yeah so we got to that point and then but also at that point we the green market hadn't quite taken off yeah. i alluded it to earlier it was like it was quite subsidy driven subsidies were dropping off a bit in the uk yeah um and a private sector and, started um, to get involved at this point i guess yeah, it was just, it, I mean, it subsequently proved that it could make money and it did knock a lot of the cowboys out of that market. You know, I remember, you know, if you think back in the early um, 2010s, you know, it was every builder was banging solar panels on people. Yeah. They, yeah. Know, they, and they'd be out. driven by that subsidy. Yeah. And they'd, the they'd be, be hiring loads of people and they'd be winding up the businesses like as soon as the subsidies dropped because they couldn't afford to do it at a yeah. lower rate. So what we found was that the that time we, we we were quite uk focused so we were like mm, we're not oh, we're not all in on it right now but what happened was as we were, as we were growing the rest of the business with the different brands we realized that green was suddenly becoming a lot more international yeah um or we we were able to expand internationally we opened up a chinese under that one brand 13 and yeah so we thought is the rest of it all just a bit of a distraction as well yeah whilst there's you know there's it's, we don't own them all we don't control them all so therefore our influence isn't as effective yet it still affects our own reputations and brands because it's yeah. part of the same group so we wanted to just siphon the rest off and focus purely on green because it was the it was clearly we, we were getting approached as well by people who were interested in buying or getting investing in green now the figures weren't anywhere near and enough for them to be able to offer us enough for us to exit at, at that point um but it made us realize and they but everyone would say well we don't we're not interested in the other brands yeah. because we either got one ourselves already or it's it's too generic it's not what we want to get in we're interested so you in narrowed your focus green bit so yeah so we really refocused in on green and then kick so that was a that was a motivational bit again kick it on again mm. and then we yeah. did, so we went for another three years yeah. Um, and then it got to a point where we had children yeah. and both moved out of London in 2016. And then we sort of went through a slight bit where we'd, we hired a few experienced people on yeah. decent salaries. And this is where the difference lies in terms of when you, when you hire graduates, I said earlier, like you, you, you know, the nervousness comes in let you know letting them off the leash yeah but you don't generally worry too much about the enthusiasm and the energy we had the we had the opposite in terms of like say with the with experience hires where you, you're buying in people that have got as much or maybe even more 
time just in in the green sector than you have and you're expecting them to come in and basically say do what they say they're going to do which is yeah whatever, you know take and, the initiative come up with yeah. new ideas so we invested a lot of money back into the business to try and grow that as i alluded to earlier, the offshore wind wind business and contract and mm-hmm. brought in some people on some significant salaries and they just took the piss a bit and didn't really it didn't work out i mean you can always just it's easy to always blame it i'm sure there was you know i'm sure i could have done something differently or this was something different. but essentially good people work out and yeah they just didn't deliver anything of what they said coasted on big salaries took mm-hmm. the piss essentially and then after that Rode the coattails of their resume yeah and the, the, where we were at fault was it's a weird one you give it you give them so, you give people so much credit and leeway because of years of experience when in actual fact you're there like riding some grad every second of the day you know just to make sure that they're cracking on doing everything they should do making sure they're yeah. not taking the mickey but they are probably meanwhile you're 10 times more done, eager then you're letting someone on four times the, that person's salary do what they want yeah you know one of guys we ended up we, he was on strava and we found out because he was on it with the other guys in the office they were like oh by the way so and so he's working at home he works at home on a friday but half 10 in the morning he's just been on a bike ride and um and you're thinking and you think and you think crumbs we, we we've given you give people too much credit and too much slack and in actual fact as people get older their energy levels tend to wane less and mm. people's lives change stuff so it's 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 not, it's, not, it's not a blanket rule for everyone, but it's, a, it's really important that you really take your time on an experienced hire to make sure that their mo- the motivations are there for them Still there. to match their experience, that they're not burnt out or they're not... Um... It's a super interesting topic and point. And I, actually, I remember having this conversation with you around the 2017-2016 time when obviously this was happening in real time for you. And I have to say, like that conversation and a conversation that we sort of brushed on earlier where you talked about um maybe i think well, when we saw when you when we, you were talking about the difference in temp and permanent uh, recruitment and how you guys wanted you always wanted to get into permanent um, into temp recruitment because it looked great for prospective buyers but you realized actually it was more effort than it was worth and you you sort of i remember having a conversation with you where you were like we, you realized that it was almost your egos were driving that part of your business and it wasn't actually what you were good at and you had to refocus on what you were fantastic at. I remember that yeah. being a really important, a really good conversation to have with you and something that I took, I took away a great, you know, a great um, lesson in the sense that I was like, God, the amount of times that I've let ego get in the way of business decisions and kept things, kept projects going, kept business ideas alive because I wanted them to work more than they were working. And like you said, I wasn't thinking really about the, that part of the business or that project making any money. It was just purely mm-hmm. on ego. And, and the, the, probably the most important conversation I ever had with you was when with the, I've taken some really important lessons away from was this, what you were now, what you're talking about with experienced hires was I used to be so focused on retaining staff. I used to be so um, like, head over heels with an impressive resume and obviously that I mean you know a resume is great and and it can open up so many different doors for you but I realized oh in my industry 
you know, experience hires as, as with Churchy and we're in two polar opposite ends of, of the business world. It's, it just, it's, it, they seem like they want to come in and tell you how you need to run your business. And you're like, well, we've got our business model here. This is what works for us. Like you with grads and me with non-experienced um, employees, I'd rather have somebody that I can get quickly onto my, my, um, my path, my culture, and, and rather mm. than somebody who's going to come in and try and impose their own culture, their own work ethic. And like you said, sometimes you give them so much credit that he's at home on a Friday go, taking the bike out for a spin and, and you've put that much trust in him because he's, he's an experienced yeah. hire. I mean, is that the cliche saying, isn't it, which is like hire, hire slow, fire fast. But mm. it, it sounds a bit blunt. The ethos of that is correct. That it's you know we've got one guy that's still you know he's one of my directors who's he's brilliant and he was an experienced hire. But yeah. The interview process we had with him was significant, and I took five verbal references from previous people that he'd worked with, CEOs and people and and I got a consistent reference from all of, yeah. everything that was said was the same mm-hmm. um and and that and he's probably the, the only one that's really been of any success that, that we've yeah. hired of, of, a, of a senior level within the business yeah. um and, and it's probably because we, we've hired him slowly took references but even then it's still very broad skill sets so it took us a while to get him into the right right position but if we go back to um quickly to you were talking about my motivations how they've dropped off I think yeah. once we um, they slightly dropped off once we realised that the group thing wasn't going to work because mm-hmm. more because of personalities and things like that. Yeah. And it wasn't you know it was we got up to like fifty seven headcount and it was yeah and what you found was you had four separate separately it was essentially it was four different cultures within one culture yeah. and we had fifty seven people in one office and then in London and then some in China and then. then it would take you'd let a few too many walls in the door and then cliques would form across different yeah. businesses and then someone in if someone was being managed poorly by another business and their best mates with someone in your business their negative views of the wider group yeah would would drag into your people and your guys would get dragged down with it as well so it was a real it became quite um poisonous because if you don't lack the control on culture because culture takes years to build and it can go in a month or something like that so mm. i think that really for a while after that it was Not. quite de- it was a bit demotivational yeah. and then we then because we then refocused on green and then we had the well a few experience highs didn't work out it's quite demotivational as well because it's, you know we've never had we've never taken on money or debt or anything like it's been our own money so it's your own you're essentially paying these people yourself out of your own yeah. pocket you get paid last so it's a bit frustrating that became a bit demotivational and then we got a um then we had something he had some interest in us and we we actually got to a point where we had signed heads of terms on a, on a larger recruiter that was trying to buy us um and they're from they're from the wider energy sector and they wanted to they had a very oil and gas brand and they wanted to get into the renewable energy green yeah. sector um thankfully it dragged and dragged and dragged and one thing that happened through that was our performance then dropped because we were so focused on <clears throat> due diligence and negotiating heads of terms we it, it's 
it's very, very draining and takes you, it's hard to keep your eye on the ball and drive your own business when you're the kind of key run, you know, operators within that business to then try and negotiate with that. And then yeah. in the end, it, it thankfully, thankfully didn't happen. Um, it wouldn't have been good right for each, each party. They were, you know, they had a lot of internal um, restructuring going on themselves. They weren't really, all of them weren't on the include into the deal. It, then they sat the CEO that was the person that approached us. It was an absolute nightmare in the end. And thank, thankfully, we, you know, we pulled out. Pulled out it. And as we pulled out, that then gave a catalyst for us to start re-looking re at where we were. So we were both young families moving, moving out, moving out of London. Yeah. Um, and we thought this is just we we can't let external factors or people coming in trying to buy our business or get involved threaten our threaten our business and our you know what we do and we need to control the controllables of our business so we learned about so that was when we really put that focus on as we talked about and I was talked about you like don't try and be everything to everyone no and try and expand too quickly or do that just focus yeah. on being what you really really good at one thing and we realized we were brilliant at mid to senior level permanent recruitment within the green wider green sector and our brand yep. lent well to that and we're really good at that so we we decided to take more of an approach where we we always try to involve the guys as, as much as possible in terms of creating a vision but we really really drilled down and came up with a a, a detailed vision that was you know helped created by the guys as well um of being basically the premium provider of, of solutions um in, in what we're doing so being everything we're doing being a premium level of service you know charging higher fees for it getting but at the same time doing a better job and really being absolute experts in what we do um and that that saw us suddenly drive and our profits would double with less people than when they had been the previous year and we had a lot of headcount and on paper from externally if people if you look if you if people you know some people look at headcount as a factor of success which is complete rubbish because yeah it's about profitability but definitely man the out, outer world we probably would have looked like we were doing better the previous yeah. year when actually we were performing a lot better financially when we had and that was all just really focus on what we were good at that was it refocusing on on what you did fantastically well it's it's interesting there's a conversation i was having today about you know mastery and mastering you know one thing and you i always i always like to liken business to sport you know the competitiveness it's um it's a team sport in some instances it's a solo sport in other instances and you know any real true master of their sport will put hours and hours and hours into what they do well um whether it be you know tiger and and his his fantastic ability to out hit everybody in the early days or it be uh, Iniesta focusing on playing two three touch football and loads people I speak to now my age young entrepreneurs they don't seem to understand this idea of mastery really taking your time focusing on what you do well instead they would rather jump into an industry and try and do everything that that industry has to offer whether it be in in um, so let's say uh, the you know hospitality industry they open a restaurant and they are focusing on giving a great dining experience but they see the restaurant next door is doubling uh, is, is doing fantastically well 
on takeout, then they want to get into takeout as well. But then that diminishes their brand as a di- as the dining experience. And I just feel, and I think you know there's a there's loads of different reasons for it, but it is it is something that so many people I speak to who are my age don't seem to appreciate really. It, the mastery of what you do well is eventually what is going to set you apart from your competitors and hopefully it, it, um, propel you forward. <laughs> but I think... Clients want to solve problems, basically. Like, clients don't come... It, you know, it's great. If you've got a good relationship with your client, brilliant. That's a, but that's a bonus, really. I, it might, I've always viewed it as, you know, clients would use us because for recruitment purposes because they either haven't got the time to do it themselves yeah. or they don't have the networks and access to, to talent that you might be able to, to get to as well. Like, yeah, right. you know, they're not paying you a fee because they want to have a chat. They're, they're not, also, they're not paying you a fee for you to tell them um, what the, you know, the transmission and distribution um, technical element of a wind farm is that they, they know that yeah. <laughs> yeah obviously you know they want to feel like you you know you're an expert and that you know your market but yeah they yeah. want to know how much do i have to pay to get the best t and d person for my wind farm they want yeah. to come to us and ask us that mm-hmm. and we need to be able to tell them well you know this is in, in fairness this is what your brand is like within the market space your competitors are paying this this and this at the moment, we've got three people immediately available. We've also got five people, passive candidates that are working for X, Y, and Z. They're on that. If you wanted that person, it's probably the best experienced person. That's their package. If you wanted them, you've got to pay more than that. If you can't yeah. afford that, then this is what you'll get. So you, if your job description is this or that, and you're looking three or four years experience of this and that, then you're going to have to probably um, compromise on certain elements there, or the location is here. If the location is there, are you going to offer your package needs to include, you know, a flight home every three months and this and that, um, mm. or you need to pay more. You're going to have to compensate people for going and working in the middle of the North sea. You know, this, they're coming to you for advice yeah. on what you're good at. And yeah. if you can't do that, then you're not offering any service at all. No. So but you need to be an expert at what you do and you need to be able to provide solutions to problems for clients. Otherwise, I always think we, we, we do sales all the time. So you need to be able to ring up someone. It's hard. You, you, you know, you, I had a sales call today and normally I, you know, he was trying to flog cryptocurrency trading or something bollocks like that, but he, he was polite. Not into the crypto. Yeah, but he wasn't, he was polite. Yeah. And it, we're in the middle of a crisis here and everyone's trying to earn a living. <laughs> and I thought fair play. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The phone, you, you know, you've not been obnoxious. You've been mm. so. I was just like, I let him speak, and then I just said, um, "What is it? You, you know, the usual. What is it you actually do? Because you know, unless you, I always think you should be able to say in the first sentence what what you're actually calling for and what you do. But yeah, he said, um, he said what it was, and I said, "Oh no, that's not for me. Thanks." But I said, "Good luck trying to find some customers." And then he's like, "Thanks." And um, normally, if it, <laughs> normally I've been hung up, probably if just. If, yeah. it wasn't, if we weren't in this particular time but I did feel a bit I sort of had a bit of admiration yeah. for it as well but I think from a sales perspective if you can't ring up and describe what your product is and how it will um, solve a problem for your client mm-hmm. within 30 seconds 
mm-hmm. you don't have a very good service or product, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, so yeah, you have definitely. to explain to a client what it is first. Yeah, I and agree. They, and take time to describe it. And then once they've understood what it is, then they still haven't put the link together as to what problem in their business it can solve. Yeah. You're just not, you're not, you're going to struggle basically. So yeah. um, that's why we've always been like the green recruitment company. You ring up, they might grow from the name. Oh, no, recruitment company's got hold of me here, but <laughs> you, you don't need to spend 30 seconds describing who you are. Like as soon as you say where you're from. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You, the so message like, is super concise with you guys. Yeah. It will be, we understand that you've just won um, the contract to provide the, you know, wind turbines on a new development on Dogger Bank. Um, uh, we're working with a number of ex, you know, candidates at the moment that have been um, working on installations in the one that's just coming to an end. Yeah. Uh, would you be interested in seeing them? Like you've kind of identified, you know, why they might rather than, you know, just it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's basic sales, but at the same point, it comes every business. Our product is set. It, we have to sell and our yeah. service is finding people, but <clears throat> it comes back to every single business has to be able to sell, whether it's through marketing or direct sales or whatever you are essentially, yeah. you know, sponsored ads, everyone's selling. And if you can't get across to your target audience, what your product is and why it will solve a problem for them, whether it's consumers or businesses, then you, you, you kind of, you're struggling from the outset. Definitely. So, no, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, that was a great follow on point is be, to be concise. And like you say, from the outset, it's not very good business model or business. If you, if you can't be concise and clear with what it is and what you're doing and, and what, um, where you fit into the market and what you can do for your consumer and your customers. Um, yeah, man, I think we, you know, we covered some seriously great topics there and it's been awesome to get some further insight into the recruitment industry and obviously how you've progressed as an entrepreneur. And I think there's some seriously fantastic takeaways that hopefully listeners and young entrepreneurs can digest and take away. Like I said, even from conversations I've had with you personally, I've taken away two fantastic things that I've implemented in my businesses and as an entrepreneur myself. And, and I think that's why I've started this podcast and is to have conversations with people like yourself who, you know, you're further, way further down the line than I am. I mean, way, 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 way further down the line than I am. But, um, but it provides some serious, I think it's great fact, insight. I mean, look, a lot of it is just about starting it. It's about doing things rather than talking about doing things. Yeah. And it's not, it's never as hard as you think. You just, no. as soon as you take, it's like, it's like it's like jumping off a you know going cliff jumping or something, and you spending hours up there shitting yourself, and then you jump off, and there's no yeah. going back then, and yeah. and you realise it's actually not as scary as you thought when you, you no know, hopefully For, no definitely the um, and also I think, these days it's so much. I mean, it's easier than ever with you know the access to information that we readily have is phenomenal what you can teach yourself and and even you know even with something like starting up your own business there's so much information on there on how to do it there's so many people talking about it there's podcasts you can there's ridiculous amounts is there like that's interesting you know obviously it'd be interesting from my perspective is in my early 20s and your perspective in your third in your 30s growing up 
uh, in, when you were 29 and you were venturing out on your own, what were some real key influences on, or, or what were some resources that you used to rely on heavily for information? Because obviously, you know, history degree, you've, you've gone and learned the recruitment industry from the inside out. But in terms of running your own business, being a leader, uh, being an entrepreneur, what were some key resources and, and information that you used to rely on for the know-how? Well, we've always had, I mean, we've always had, a, we always had a business model of keeping our operational costs as low as possible. So we outsource as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, we, so we, we, from the start, we always outsource to our accountancy, right, to everything like that. So whenever you're speaking to someone, you're paying them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so they, they're, they're part of your supply chain. So, you know, you're getting value from them. So you lean on them quite a lot for advice and things like finance. And, and you, yeah. you, kind of, you just learn that as you're going along. Unless, <clears throat> I'm not, you know, you know, if I'd been su- su- motivated such, then I might have gone and, you know, done some kind of, you know, formal training, maybe in accountancy or finance, but mm-hmm. I, it's never really, I've never personally found that in, of interest. So it didn't, it's not held me back in that respect. So you far. are, um, but I, one thing we did do. Go on. Sorry. I was going to say, no, it is a unique, it is a unique position that obviously as, the, as a business owner, you can, if there is something when you take that leap of faith, when you go out and do it, if there is anything you are unsure of, like you said, you can outsource to a company that you're paying and they're going to give you the best advice they possibly can on the subject. Or you can, you can employ somebody to come in like you did with the exec to come in and, and, and teach you, right. This is how things are done. And this is how we're going to move forward and progress, you know, as a business owner, it's not easier to change the client. Yeah. I think from our from our perspective as well, we we never really, we've never we'd never managed, or we ha- we obviously have now, but we hadn't ever managed non-sales stuff. Yeah, and it's uh, I, I it's it's quite easy. Well, it's not easy, but <clears throat> when you've managed sales stuff, you know you know how to motivate sales stuff. You know what incentives to put in and structure and things like that. I I wouldn't have mess- I would have known how to manage a, a finance director that would have been older yeah. than me and more yeah. experienced and different in, in a very young young environment. Mm-hmm. So from there was, it was it was twofold really. One was to keep costs down, but again it was to make sure that we were doing things that we were capable of doing. Um, and at that time I wouldn't have been capable of managing a you know forty fifty year old finance director. And probably wouldn't have had the cash either. And also it's a lot easier to change supplier than it is to you know let someone go yeah, and replace them from a, from a human resources perspective. So there was that. But there was um it was getting the it was getting non exec advice from the start. But <laughs> what I would say is is that it's very key to keep, it's always good to have a non-exec, but you need to refresh them based on their strengths and where you're at as a business. Yeah. So the first non-exec we had was very good because he um, was very well versed in creating these five, three to five year plans and working with the figures and working back from what you wanted to get to, to what you then needed to do. So you knew, <laughs> you knew your key metrics almost from day one as to what you wanted yeah. to do. So that was good thinking in the right way. Um, and then we changed to non-exec years based on, again, what like I said, what, what we wanted to achieve at that point of our evolution of the, of the business. But we also, we also joined a, um, that non-exec, he also ran like a, um, a company, it's a networking business for recruitment owners. So you'd go along to them, 
mingle with other recruitment owners and everyone would just bring their own issues and things that work well and everyone would be really open to share it and then you have guest speakers come in and talk about um from different sectors and they just come in and talk to you and give you loads of you know speak on different topics and you should just be learning things from that in that respect so that was yeah. really good <coughs> it was um again you, you got to try different things after a while it became too much because you had too much noise and you had you had too many ideas and i was probably guilty of trying to implement too many ideas at once at some point because i was going to these external things and at some point you just need to focus on your own business and know what you do well and, and not yeah, try to no really good point you no know, bring in loads of stuff so it's yeah. good to get hear opinions but only go and get them if you've got the ability to filter out what's relevant True. to your business and not try no. and, and bring it all in but i think that definitely helped i think it's i'm a big believer in doing in doers and people that have achieved things there's a lot of people in every industry, particularly in recruitment, that go touting their wares as non-execs or guest speakers or this and that. Yeah. And you look at this, you look at what they've actually achieved, and it's, it's they haven't run their own business apart from maybe a training business that yeah. they've just set up to tell you how to run your business or things like that. So I think <clears throat> you get a lot of charlatans in in a lot of sectors. So I'd say if you're going to get advice from people, get advice from people that've done it and they that have done it fairly recently, not people yeah. that are you know, trying to just go around picking up 1500 quid a day from 20 different companies to live a very nice lifestyle where they don't have any skin in the game in your business yeah. as well. But also equally you'll get the others that want to get a bit part of their fee. They'll say, well, we'll do a lesser day rate, but I just want a percentage of your business if we sell it and if you sell it and we help you, which again, you don't need to do that. You can keep control of your own business. Just, you know, that, you know, anything from, 750 to 1500 pound a day once a quarter would be money well spent on a on a kind of a passionate experience someone that's achieved something in your sector that you're doing yeah in your sector you don't want you don't need someone from another sector because they don't, no. they don't get your sector no. they just won't you know they won't get it so we had a we had a coo once um come in and he was like a ex-coo of hsbc or something in london and he came in and was telling us to do a, a you know, 12 month rebate where you give money back it full feedback after 12 months if your candidate didn't start because he was saying well you know that would make me really impressed if a recruiter offered you that and you're like i'm sure you would if you were the client yeah. but you yeah. go out of business because clients could just you know if people are yeah, hard, yeah, hard, yeah. people to roles that they haven't said what they are and the candidate leaves and give the whole feedback after you done all the work for it so that's the point you need people that get your sector <laughs> you need different voices but you need to innovate but you don't need you don't need people coming in that you need to educate you, you need to you're paying them 1500 quid a day and essentially they you're training them on your about. sector yeah and like you said so, um, if if like you said with with think, how you are with client with your customers if they're not the same if they weren't the same with you if they didn't know what they're talking about probably not the best fit for to give you advice on your company yeah but i think um, with, uh, with with young people starting businesses i think it's it's quite not hard but i think there's a lot of pressure on because you can see people making quick money on social media channels through yeah. building followers and sponsorship and like that but as a purport, as a actual percentage of people that try and do it it must be it must be like anything it must be very very small oh yeah you, the you, know, you crazy influ crazy influencers are there they're like 
Richard Branson types of this day where they're few and far between. Therefore, mm. I think people need to think what is an actual business. It's mm. about, you know, scalable, something that can be scalable, that, you know, you can make money from, you know, that's going to still be around in five years' time, 10 years' time, that's something that's got, is providing solutions for clients. Um, or, or something or something that you're really skilled in yourself mm. <clears throat> like why not you know why not what's wrong with the qualifying as an accountant and going to set up your own accountancy you know very true you're good at it yeah um, and then and then you either become a self-employed accountant and maybe have two or three people working for you or you think I want to scale this to 20 50 people and have partners and that's grow it. it or sell it and it's depending on your motivations but um yeah exactly you know, I be, think be you... a bit realistic maybe about what a business actually is so many people think that they need to come up with the next facebook or instagram to get into the business and and to become an owner and uh, and a founder of a business when like you said it can already be an existing sector that you're knowledgeable on and and um if you have the you know go out and get the know-how and scale it up and just do it it's it's not it's not as hard as people some people think really it's also what's success to you not what's success to other people because <clears throat> again i think like we've gone through different stages we, we we're sort of coming out of a stage where everything was about what you could show off on your social media and like what you materially have and it's more changing now to the workplaces there's a lot there's a lot more chat about work-life balance, homeworking. I know, but if you ignore what's obviously the workplace is going to change, you know, uh, significantly from what's happened now. But it was already being, it was already happening. Is it, you know, everything's talking about, um, yeah, di- diversity, gender equality. You know, everything's much more looking at society as a whole, how yep. it's reflecting the workplace, flexibility for maternity leave for you know everything is, is a lot more flexible because people are valuing the time with their family outside of work now more and companies are having to adapt to that and allow it therefore if you're starting your own business are you starting it from a point of view where you're willing to just give you know work seven days a week and be that type yeah. of entrepreneur or do you want to be someone that Lifestyle. wants to have a certain business so you, you can't go into something going i want to grow my business to, in five years to you know, X amount of value and sell it, yeah. but then also go, but I want to spend Fridays, Sundays with my mates and my family. And I want to do eight, nine till four yeah. um, because I want to play tennis in the evenings. Yeah, it's not that that's that. wrong, but it, no. just, it doesn't, it, it just has to, it has to be in line with what your goal is. Yeah. You know, if you want exactly a lifestyle that, business, brilliant. Yeah, but, but no, I think really that. another really super important <coughs> for listeners to digest is you know it is like you said it is okay if you want to work a five day a four five day week and be a business owner and be an entrepreneur and have a startup that is fine you know that is the beauty of being your own boss you, nobody else is telling you when or where you need to work but if your competitor who starts up at the same time as you is getting that much further ahead because he's working the seven day week don't complain because he's not taken, they've not taken the time off yeah. and, and you've had that lifestyle. Um, well, you've had child, children younger and they haven't. Yeah, and it's, exactly you know, that. That's the choice, this is fine, but. Exactly that, exactly that. I think, yeah, I think we, it's really interesting because I, you know, I write down questions. I've written down 
written down about nine questions today because last week I had uh, two guests on and I knew hopefully it would run us about an hour and a half. Um, but, you know, it is great. to. It's been a great conversation because we've covered literally all of the questions organically that you've hit points on, you know. We've covered everything from leadership, motivation, your education, employment, vision, um, USPs. Um, but one thing I want to start doing and I did last week is sort of an off topic question um, that I want to propose to you as an entrepreneur who of, of in their thirties um, to get perspective on it. You know, so last week we talked about passive income when the whole subject of the podcast was side hustles, startups, being, being, you know, in early twenties. And obviously today it's been about um, scaling up your business the realities of business, you know, the recruitment sector as a whole, motivation, leadership, self-teaching. So the question, the off-topic question I want to throw to you, um, Matt, is from your perspective, at the age you are with a young, with a youngish family, I guess now, um, about you know it, it exiting a recruitment business. How important do you see? social media as a whole um, being in the next five, 10 years to all industries, to, to mainstream business. I guess what I thought would be an interesting, why I thought it's been an interesting question for you is, you know, you, a lot of listeners probably think now, you know, what the hell does uh, recruitment salesman know about social media and business? But really I bet a lot of your employees spend a hell of a lot of time on LinkedIn. I mean, well, yeah, LinkedIn is, is just quite ridiculous. I mean, we spend, well, tens and tens of thousands of pounds a year with LinkedIn for all the different licenses as well. So I think pretty much I, I'm yet to find, speak to any recruitment business owner that does. I, I wouldn't really include LinkedIn if we're talking about social, because it's so much of a, it's just, you can't talk about recruitment and you can't do recruitment without LinkedIn. using it unless you're a, yeah, unless you're a top, top, top echelon headhunter that's it's doing... got an amazing little black book of contacts. Yeah, exactly. Unless and, and unless that's where you're at over years, it, it's just hand in hand. So I think if you if you if you discount LinkedIn because everyone uses it, you know that you know any 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 job seeker pretty much in a professional yeah. set will be on it. Sports, you know, I'm connected with like the Clive Woodward, Will Green, they, they you know all these ex pros in, in sports they're always doing other things after after sport and they're always promoting those on linkedin as well yeah 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 and um so it, it's just it's that's just a, almost like it's, it's, they, they call it a professional networking site don't they, rather than a social networking site but true true in a way. but in terms of um i think it's more about how's the workplace changing and then how do you utilize social media Social media is there, isn't it? And if you put a brand, you get a certain reach and a certain, you know, but I've always found in recruitment, we're, we're not selling product as such where, so I can't give you a, a great answer on how do I use, you know, social media. We don't do like sponsored Instagram posts because we're selling Chinese made trainers that look like Nikes or whatever is. You know, you get a, you can get a direct ROI there because you're paying X amount of money. You're using paper click, using this, you're using that, yeah. and you can go categorically 
I spent X amount of money on, on that social media channel and we received this amount of orders through it. Recruitment is a lot more about building your brand and your brand perception. Obviously, from direct adverts, you can track that quite clearly. But again, you're putting those out more into job adverts and stuff like that. If you're looking at Facebook and um, also you've got GDPR com- you know, complications with regards to how you're acquiring people's details and things like that. So you've got to make sure that wherever you, you know, however you're attracting your candidates and, and that side of things that you're doing it in a compliant way with regards to GDPR guidelines. But in terms of, you know, something like TikTok, our clients aren't going to be on TikTok. They might be, but our client demographic are going to be more likely to be quite serious, um, professionals working in either finance or engineering within renewable energy that they might have it but they're less likely to be there doing crazy funny TikTok bids people that might work for us graduates if we're looking for internal recruitment then that might be a, an avenue that we would look at same as with Facebook Instagram we've tried everything basically Twitter Instagram it all has its place channel has its own thing so for example with twitter you can engage with ceos of the biggest companies in the world by retweeting them or messaging them or just building up that constant communication with that person and suddenly before you know it you know you could be dealing with someone really senior in climate change in new york i'm speaking to them on that pre without twitter you would never get that Ability, they wouldn't even pick up their phone, they wouldn't read your emails, you just wouldn't be able to contact them. So Twitter's brilliant for that. Facebook. Facebook's changing anyway to, you know, it's, it's yeah. our parents are now less. That's it. Yeah. So, it was interesting you know, when you were saying, obviously, about the, you know, the, your prospective clients being the more serious type. I was thinking, I wonder if we were sat in 2012 and I, we, I asked you this question and we were the same age, you were at the same level in your career. I asked you the same question. You would say, well, my clients are the serious type who aren't on Facebook, you know, and, and whether now yeah. it's just that timeline thing that probably in 10 years, we might be sat here and, and I ask the question to somebody else and they say, well, my clients, you know, they're the serious type. They might be on TikTok, but they're not on this new one. They're not on WivWav or whatever the next one's going to be, you know, it's, it's yeah. like the I life think- cycle of the social media. It's just, it's huge really yeah like i think each platform has it its own place and sure. you need to I mean, know what it's the gen you, Z you need to go into TikTok, understanding it? yeah why are you using it also the, the the branding side of things is like so for example on on, on linkedin i know i said i would mention linkedin but linkedin we've got one hundred and twenty-eight thousand followers now so we've built that up over 10 years now yeah. that's actually quite that's the, the where that works is if you're speaking to clients and you're trying to win pitches you can say we've got over twice as much many followers as you can go on linkedin and check us and our competitors and you will see that our network even just on linkedin is evidence of how much a wider reach we have because of it so it's building that but i think that what we're seeing as well is we're going to see whilst the workplace is changing i think leaders are either going to have to adapt or new leaders need to come in from a different the next generation and you've seen it with say for example b with bp with bernard looney coming in, coming out and saying that you know the carbon neutrality targets that they've set for bp mm. it's all a lot of it's been done um via this type of, via via you know airbuds and 
and um, video links. Yeah. It's, it's a very much more this whole informal one. I know, like, obviously, the corona scenario we're in now means it's happening a lot more. Push that lead but, it forward, was happening, yeah. but it was happening anyway. Anyway, and, and, I agree. And as a face of a business, CEOs now have to be prepared to go and talk down a camera. And it's yeah. something that, like, not everyone's comfortable doing. No, um, no. I was comfortable doing it, and now I'm a bit like... Can't, you know, can't be a hard signal, but at the same time, you've got to do that sort sort of thing, and your competitors are doing it. So, <laughs> the culture, I think, the whole culture with business is changing. You know, it's gone from uh, the a boardroom full of men who, you know, the execs of a company in in custom suits, and that was it. You know, and now it's like you said, as the world changes, it becomes more inclusive. Businesses become totally more inclusive. Companies have to adapt their brand to be inclusive to appeal to the new markets and i think like you said culture is changing it's becoming much much more informal something i touched on last week as well it's interesting to see that even you know somebody like i mean obviously you have to have your finger on the pulse to be in the position you are anyway but you know it's interesting to see that a, a lot of different stages in the spectrum right now in business everyone seems to have the same sort of uh, consensus that culture is changing and, and like you said it's becoming a little bit more formal and I think you're right that the lockdown quarantine periods probably have moved that leap forward a couple months if not a year yeah I think yeah it's like how you, it's all very well getting followers and it? it's how you engage with them and how you retain them and keep them interested so it's all about content isn't it providing content yeah. to your followers that they find of interest that they'll come to you because they they want to hear you. I always think it's like when you follow if you follow someone on Twitter. Yeah. Me, you, know, you follow Gary. If I follow I follow Gary Lineker. I yeah. want to hear what Gary Lineker's got to say about the Champions League. Yeah. At night, I don't want to hear what Gary Lineker's got to say about Brexit. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not. It's not. No. It's not because it's not because I don't like him or I don't respect his views. But that's not what I'm following him for. No, I'm following him because I want to. I want to zone out of that. I want to just yeah. someone good at football talk about football. You've curated your followers, your who you're following, because you want to hear a certain narrative at certain times. You yeah. don't, and it should be escapism almost. Listening yeah. to people's, it's like with Piers Morgan when he goes on about where he was hammering into Alistair Cook, and and it's like, mate, you 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 play cricket, you were shit at cricket, yeah. Yet you you've inserted yourself in that. I want to hear what your views are on Donald Trump, regardless of yeah. being a bit sycophantic towards it. I kind of want to hear that views, and I want to hear your views on the press and how the press are operating, because that's what you, what that is your subject is. field. Yeah. I, want to no. hear I don't want to hear you slagging off Alistair Cook. So it's, it's all about that's what you've got to do. So when you're producing content to your followers, it's got to be, they want to hear you talk about your Trump. niche, your subject. The problem, is, the problem is you find it really boring because you do it all the time and you think, you think what I've got to say because I know Nobody it and I do it all the time. About. Yeah, why would they care about it? And then... But really, there are people out there. Do. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. Something that I think is, is, is another massive misunderstanding with people in the content that they put out and scale up is you think you're the only person in the world who cares about the shit that you want to talk about or that you have any knowledge on. But... It, you know, there's so many, there's tens of thousands of people out there that are interested in the same things and they will find you. You just got to keep putting the content out. And I think like you said, it's at the moment though, social media has its certain places with certain demographics in certain industries. Um, 
but like I like like we sort of discussed, I think the subject the the culture of it is all changing. But yeah, I think you're right there. I think it's interesting to get, like I said, it's interesting to get your view on it. Obviously, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner in your industry um, and at your stage in in the career in the in your career. Cool. But uh, but yeah, I think that's been about an hour and a half. So I'll probably wrap up there because I'm getting called to play articulate as well. I request one thing that you, uh, I'm in the playroom hiding at the moment. Can you tell your sister that it went on for at least two hours longer than it did? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. I won't, I won't say that I'm done. I won't let anybody take a picture of me playing articulate. Oh, one thing I did say I was going to ask you, obviously I had Dylan on last week. Yeah. Uh, And you know, he was here just talking about how he became a big dog in London um, you know, he was a high flying guy, you know, really, really setting the bar, showing the other grads how it was done in the green company. You know, is there anything that you could maybe give any advice you could give D boy for his return to the big smoke? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we'll leave it there. I'm sure Dylan's listening. So, uh, I think that's the message loud and clear D boy. <laughs> work harder next time um churchy thanks for coming on mate uh, it's been really really good i've really enjoyed our conversation Cheers, it, see you later stay safe bye-bye awesome okay that was young bucks episode two i said i was gonna do it i've done it it's gonna be a weekly thing um i hope you can tune back in for episode three next week i'm gonna have my uh sister and her boyfriend on they're from uh, gym that they've started up in Torquay it's called Grow Wellness it's a bespoke gym um and a boutique gym and they offer seriously high quality one-to-one classes PTing and they're going to come on and talk about the early stages of entrepreneurship how they've progressed through their lives and and where they've come from how they um have formed the partnership and a relationship and, and and ran the gym how it's affected them in terms of their education, how they've taken that into what they do now, into life experiences and what they do now, and their passion for the the health industry. So tune in next week. I'm sure that that series that'll be a really good one. That's going to be my first interview with somebody where we're in the same room as well. So sound quality should be loads better. Obviously, I know at the moment with the lockdown, we've not been able to get people on the show in in a central location and recording together. So the sound issues have been abundant. Um, this is the first week where I'll hopefully I'll have an editor. So the sound should be a lot better and a lot more even. Uh, thank you for listening and, and tuning in all the way if you have. Uh, it does mean a lot to me. Obviously, this is something that I've done out of, out of a passion project for entrepreneurship and business. Um, and yeah, we've got some seriously great guests lined up over the coming weeks. And the, and the week after ne- uh, next, we're going to be talking about franchises and moving forward. If you guys do want to get involved in the show, don't be scared to tweet me or DM me on Instagram. That's how I found uh, my next guest beyond Harriet and Travis next week. Um, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, my Twitter handle is at William Hobbs Biz 101. I'm on TikTok at William Hobbs Biz 101. Same name on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to get hold of me on Instagram, it's at Wills Hobbs. Um, so yeah, thank you a lot to, to Matt for coming on. It was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. It was a seriously deep dive and there's a hell of a lot to think about there guys, you know, but I think one of the biggest takeaways is just fucking do it. Businesses, like Matt said, it's, it's a lot harder from the outside in. Once you jump off that cliff, 
It's a great journey. I, I I love it. I hope everybody listening loves it. So if you want to get in touch with Matt and if you do have any questions about recruitment or the stage of, of business that he's in, uh, motivation, leadership, anything, employment, anything, um, you can get hold of him on LinkedIn, Matthew Churchward um, at the, the Green Recruitment Company. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been Young Bucks episode two.